Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Welcome to Ashley Talks Podcast 9. Today we have a fantastic guest. I'm so, so, so excited to have Frederick Herron. Uh, he is the author and a keynote speaker. He talks about business creativity. He talks about change. He talks about global influences. He is uh, absolutely fantastic because he's delivered more than 2,000 keynotes in 65 countries and across six con- uh, continents. Um, he was voted the speaker of the year in Sweden, and he is also the best Swedish speaker ever. He got on that list just recently. He is an author of more than 10 books that are worldwide bestsellers. Frederick, I'm so, so, so excited to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Um, Frederick, you are a professional speaker and you're also running the uh, Professional Speakers Association in Singapore. Uh, You are writing books. You have a fantastic career. Tell us your story. How did it all happen? A Swedish guy in Singapore running the world. <laughs> all right. So uh, I actually uh, wrote my first book in 19... And it was published. I wrote it in 94. It was published in 95. And the title was Internet and Marketing. So this was basically based on my university thesis. When I was still in university, I was 27 years old. And I, I, re- I found this thing called the Internet in 1993 because I just happened to study in the U.S. for uh, uh, one semester, two semesters. And my then girlfriend was still in Sweden. And I found out this thing called email that you could actually send letters to, to, to your loved ones. And they would, they would come like in one second instead of like six weeks. That's how it used to be. Uh, so I told my girlfriend, go find internet anywhere in Sweden. And she did. And then we started emailing. And then I started, I saw, you know, this is before there were pictures on the internet, literally. And I saw you could play backgammon with people. Like, and I said, more and more things started. I said, this is going to change everything. So I went back to my last year in university and I wrote my thesis on, uh, I was a marketing major, so how will internet change marketing? And my, and my, um, my teacher almost did not approve the subject because he didn't know what the internet was. So, oh, no. So I had to convince him that this is going to be big. But then when I had written my thesis, I, I realized this could actually be, this is more important than just a thesis. So I turned it into a book and it became a bestseller in Sweden. So... At 27, people started asking me to speak because I was an expert. So the, the, I always say to people, the definition of an expert is, as a speaker, as a speaker, the definition of an expert is you know more than the audience. That's the only thing. As long as you know more than the audience, you're okay. You're, you're, you're allowed to be on the stage. And in my case, I knew about 10 weeks more about the internet than anyone in, <laughs> anyone in business at that time. At that time, I, I literally started my speeches by saying, the internet is a network of networks. And that's my okay. opening line. So, uh, and, and people would just rush after it. So, I, yeah, so suddenly I realized uh, I started an internet company in 95, but I continued to speak because I loved the part of speaking. Then in 1999, I sold the company. Mm-hmm. And then I was 32, I guess. And uh, then I said, okay, now I sold my company. Uh, it, was, it was like December 99, I sold it. So just before the dot-com bust. Okay. So, <laughs> well then, done. <laughs> well, I, got, I got paid partly in shares, which was a bad decision, but it, it was okay. So, and then I said, okay, for the rest of my life, what do, what do I like doing the most? I like all the things I like to do. But, and I said, the one thing I really, 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 really like is the writing, the research, and the speaking. So I said, for the rest of my life, I'm just going to do that. It's like the cherry on top of the cake kind of thing. So uh, since 2000, that's the only thing I've been doing. Mm. And, uh, for the, and, see, and then in 2005, that's when I was very successful as a speaker in Sweden. I said, this, this is not a challenge anymore. I need to, to think bigger. Mm. And that's when I decided to move to China. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. It was the time when, in the five-year plan, China mentioned innovation, I think, I think it was like 50 times in the one five-year plan. It never happened. Right. It was never there before. <laughs> so I said, I, I'm an expert on creativity and, and change in, in, in Sweden. The Chinese are suddenly saying they're going to be innovative. They don't know how to do that. I need to help I'm them. going to China. I'm going to go to China and teach the Chinese how to be creative. That was my plan. I had no interest in China. I didn't speak Chinese. I didn't know the culture. And I was, I left, I came as a single guy and just landed in China. And then I did that for about two years. It was very interesting. There was like no market for professional speakers in China. Uh, <laughs> I remember one time there was a conference and they said, how much, uh, uh, I said, we wanted to speak at the conference. I said, okay, this is 2005, I think. We wanted to speak at the conference. I go, sure. And then they said, 20,000 RMB. And I said, um, 
it's like it's lower than my normal fee, but it's okay. I just came here. So I said, oh, it's okay. You pay. Me. It's okay. I'm, I accept twenty thousand. They said, no, no, no. You have to pay twenty thousand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I also remember I got my book published in China. I went to a publisher, and then the first part, everything was done. We like we we talk book covers and everything, but we haven't done the deal yet. And then they said, okay, so let's talk about the deal. Said, okay, we. We'll give you zero percent. No, first you have to pay, I think, three thousand RMB for the translation. Then we give you zero percent up to twenty thousand copies sold. And after that, we'll give you five percent rating. Okay. So how many copies do you think you're going to sell? I said. They said twenty thousand copies. Said, but wait, you mean I'm going to pay three thousand dollars and three thousand RMB, and then most likely I will get zero percent royalty? I said, yeah, that's correct. I said, why on earth do you think I'm going to do this? And they just said, welcome to China. So have you accepted that offer, no, 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 or no. was it the reason no, 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 why you no, no, left? No, no, no. no. I, I no, I love that part of China. I love this hard negotiation thing. I think the world has to learn that very quickly, and they haven't. But I went to four different publishers who gave me a better deal. Let's just say that. But so I, I came to China and I loved it. But after two years, I, first I realized two things. First thing I realized is I was not there to teach the Chinese about creativity. They are creative. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I realized I don't want to live in China. But as as amazing as China was, I lived in Beijing, in, you know, the center of China. But it's kind of the middle you know, the middle kingdom kind of mentality. It's a very very big country, and if you live in a big powerful country you get sucked up into that country. It's kind of like living in New York or Washington. Everything becomes America. It's very difficult to have a global mindset in, in, in Washington, D.C. You think you have, but you have an, you have an American global mindset. And mm-hmm. you live in Beijing, you have a Chinese global mindset. Yeah. I mean, there's so much happening in China, you don't understand what, you, you're missing what happened in the rest of the world. And I decided that I want to have a global mindset. So I left China and I said, what is the most global place on earth? Uh, and I found Singapore because New York is a global city, but it's a global city in America. Yeah. And right now they are talking about Syria and Donald Trump <laughs> nonstop. London is a global city, but it's a global city in the UK. So right now they're talking about Brexit and this Russian guy who got uh, you know poisoned. And that's what they talk about. But Singapore doesn't have a country around it. It's just a global city. It's like 50% are foreigners. It's very multicultural, but there's no country around it. So when you live in Singapore, you read the news, and literally it can be like a guy ran a red light. That's on the first page kind of news. So you very quickly can say, okay, nothing happens here. Let's look at the world. You have Southeast Asian influences. You have American influences. You have British, Chinese, Indian. It's all there. So for me, it's the perfect place to live. It's a very, very global. It's a very easy to have a global mindset in Singapore. So since 2008, that's where I've been living. And, and Hong Kong? Many Hong Kong is listening now. I, I, feel like. I know. <laughs> I, I actually, I was actually, this is actually, after I left Beijing, I said, okay, now where am I going to live? And for nine months, I didn't have a home. So I, I took all my things, put it in storage. And for nine months, I, I didn't have a home. So I just had a suitcase and I would go from speech to speech, just go from one speech to the next. And when I didn't have a speech, I would, I would stay longer. So I actually stayed for two weeks in Hong Kong, Seoul, Bangkok, Jakarta, uh, Mumbai, Delhi, and Singapore. So I stayed for two weeks in each of these cities trying to figure out how would it be to live in the city. So I did real due diligence on this. I might have forgotten one of them, but anyway, I think it was eight cities. And, and Hong Kong came second, but Singapore mm. is more global because Hong Kong is a global city now inside China. It, it, it is a lot, it's a more, it's a bigger influence of China than it would have been, than Singapore has. So Singapore is more global. And the, I, I like the weather better. Okay, <laughs> okay. That must be a very important aspect. And I, I'm also Swedish. I like, I know there's nature in Hong Kong, but nature is more integrated in, in Singapore. I live in a landed house in Singapore. That's very difficult to do in Hong Kong. And so there, there are quality of life issues as well. And the airport in Singapore closes, never closes. And in, you have typhoons here. And as a global speaker, I need to know that I, that flight will leave. And uh, so best airport in the world, best airline in the world. You can fly anywhere from Singapore and they never close and they're almost never delayed. So that's amazing. So that was the deal. So that that, that was, was the sorry, deal for you. Sorry, Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> but if I ever lose my work permit in, in Singapore, I will move to Hong Kong. <laughs> so that's the second choice. Hong Kong is obviously the second choice. Yes, or maybe Shanghai, but most likely Hong Kong. Fantastic, fantastic. And um, so right now you've been in Singapore for several years. Yeah, 10 years. 10 years in Singapore, and you are speaking globally, mm. right? What are the topics that people, uh, you know, creativity-related, ideas-related, what are the most 
important or in-demand topics that people would want you to talk okay. about? Okay, so I've written 10 books and, and they are being on creativity, different aspects of creativity. Actually, when I moved, when I left China, I started writing a book about creativity specifically for developing countries. The book is called The Developing World. And it's very much about China, but also I interviewed people in 18 different developing countries, creative people, between 2005 and 2008 or something like this. And I wanted to know how is creativity different in developing countries versus developed countries. And it's, it's not that developed countries are creative and developing countries are not creative. It's that there's a different kind of creativity. And my point, what can we learn? So I went from I'm going to teach creativity to people in developing countries to what can I learn about creativity mm-hmm. from people in developing countries? And uh, so I wrote, and I uh, said, I think, I think eight, 200 people in 18 developing countries from South Africa to South Korea. Mm. And, um, and then, so then I started to see have this more of a global mindset. And then when I moved to Singapore, I said, no, I'm not going to be, when I was in Sweden, I would look at myself as a Swedish speaker. I would mm. define myself as a Swedish speaker. Mm. And when I moved to China, I was a Swedish speaker who moved to China, <laughs> which is not a very good idea. But uh, when I moved to Singapore, I said, I'm not going to be a Swedish speaker in Singapore. I'm just going to be a professional speaker. Mm. And that's when I redefined myself. And I said, I'm not going to look at myself. I'm not going to define myself by my nationality. I'm going to define myself by what, what I do. So I said, I'm a professional speaker and I speak around the world. And that changed everything for me. So mm. uh, now, as you said, I think it's actually 67 countries by now. I've spoken in 67 countries. But more, more importantly, I spoke in 24 countries last year. Right. Uh, and, and on, I think, four continents or something like this. And that's what I do. I, in this 2018 so far, I'm speaking in Hong Kong today. I've spoken in uh, 10 or 11 countries this year. Right. And that's my, that, that's what, because I want to understand what's happening in the whole world. Like I was in, um, uh, in March, I was in New Zealand, London, Paris, and Mauritius. And I talked, I talked to professional speakers, I talked to bankers, I talked to lawyers, and I talked to people in the tourism industry. So I learned about all these industries and all these part, different parts of the world, develop, developing countries. Because when you do that, you get a sense of what's happening on Earth. And that is the mindset. And you can connect the dots, yes. right? So that, that's when the big picture actually comes together. Correct. Okay. So I actually wrote a blog post about this recently. I said, to be able to connect the dots, you need to collect the dots. Mm. And that's what people forget. Mm. They just say, oh, I'm just collecting, connecting dots. Well, first, you need to collect them. And you need to collect the more diverse dots you collect, the easier it is to connect and see a pattern. Because if you just have two dots next to each other, you can actually not make, make up any pattern out of that. But if you have like three, four, five, ten dots, and they're spread out on a... On a longer surface now you can draw a line and you can actually start seeing what's happening and that's the mindset i've had since well since i saw the internet 23 years ago well that's absolutely fantastic so creativity is your important topic so yes. creativity change disruption and global mindset so those are the things so, so i um, i combine all of this into what i call my inner theme and we can talk about this later mm. but my inner theme is humanity to the power of ideas Humanity Humanity to Mm. the power of ideas. And that Mm. means I believe in the potential of humanity and I believe in the power of ideas. And I think if every human being reached their maximum creative ability and and learned how to share ideas with other people across the globe, the world would be be a much, much better place. And we would innovate on it. I mean, we would make, yeah, uh, we would just create so much better solutions than what we're doing now. We haven't reached like 1% of the potential. And why? Why have we not reached it? What's stopping people? Well, uh, historically, lack of knowledge, lack of information and uh, narrow mindedness and, uh, you know, redneck mentality saying, well, I'm, I'm, I know best and everyone else is stupid. But, you know, now we had Internet for 20 years and, and now this is starting to change the, the way people think. The mindset is different. So now you can live in you know a small village in China and you can pick, you can learn English online and and then you can start researching things and and now you can pick up ideas and now you can you can you know you get all this knowledge and say well I don't agree with what my teacher tells me or what my parents tell me mm-hmm. I think or or I want to be a designer and I can now dig deep and learn every if I want to be a chair designer I can now dig deep and learn everything there is to know about chair design and I can connect with other chair designers around the world and that's what people are doing. And now our identities are much more being mm. are being much more um, defined sure. by our interests, not our geographical locations. Like like I did, I was in Mongolia in September uh, to launch my book. My book is a bestseller in Mongolia. <laughs> I'm very very happy. That's fantastic. <laughs> I have three thousand Facebook friends in Mongolia. That's like one tenth of a percent or something. <laughs> it's crazy. But I did a talk at a startup. 
a startup incubator for us, entrepreneurs, creative entrepreneurs in, in uh, Ulaanbaatar. And I walked in there and I was blown away because it was, it could have just have been Stockholm or Berlin or, you know, Boston or Singapore. Anyway, it's like, there is no different. A creative young entrepreneur in the world today is just, they dress the same, they have the same hairstyle, they, they look at the same web pages, they listen to the same music, they use the same programs, and, and they are now connecting across the world and getting to know people. And so their identity is much more tied to who they see themselves as an individual, actually much less on that geographic, that fact that they happen to be living in Mongolia. And, you know, you do this for another two or three generations, and that's going to change how humanity looks at itself. That's what, that's what I believe. Mm. Mm. And with the rise of AI, right now there's a lot of talk, as oh, you know, yeah. about the AI and how this is very, very fast going to reshape the world. Um, how do you see creativity as the, you know, as the, uh, something that humanity still holds on to? Can these algorithms be more creative? What is creativity? What is that essence? Is it a way to find better ideas or, you know, connect the dots? Because if so, can algorithms basically do it better? Yes, that's a very good question. A lot of people say that, I think there was a World, Econ World Economic Forum or something just released that creativity, like the most important skill in the next 20, 30 years. And creativity jumped from like ninth place to third place. And the idea was that now computers can do the, the boring stuff and humans can be creative. I don't believe in this, actually. Uh, I believe that my definition of creativity is that you take two things and you combine it. That's my definition. You take two things, you combine it in a new way. That is very well suited for computers to do. Yeah. That's yeah. what computers so what's, do. So what's the future? Exactly. So I am absolutely convinced the, the rights of AI will not say that now we have to be creative. It will create creative computers. Mm -hmm. That's what it will be. And I, I have this, I can't show it on a podcast, but I have this very interesting example. There's, I don't know what it's called in English, but there's this kind of a construction that, let's basically say, a, a part of a bridge that was designed by humans without computers first. And it more or less look, just looked like an L. Mm. They just welded two things together, really strong steel, just to hold the bridge up. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Then we got CAD computers. And now suddenly we could, you know, use the computer. Suddenly they became an aid for our creativity. Right. And now we can use computer, can calculate the strengths and everything. And now it doesn't look like a boring L anymore. It's like much thinner and much more uh, um, sophisticated because the computer helped, helped the human to design it. To perfect it. Perfect it. But then the latest version of this is that they asked the computer to design it all together. They said, we want this to hold up a bridge. What should it look like? And I, it's mind-blowing what it looks like. It looks, it looks like a sculpture. It looks like the inside of a, of a human bone with like 15 different narrow uh, strings of, of, uh, of thin, thin metal with a lot of air. Like no human would even think of designing it like this. But based on the algorithm, that is the strongest way to hold this bridge together. And that was all done. I mean, of course, a, computer, a human told the computer to figure this out, but the computer was more creative than the, the human with the computer and way more creative than just the human. So I think we have to have this mindset where we say, we're not going to say the computers cannot come up with an idea. We need to program computers to come up with because they can, they can combine one billion things in like a hundred billion ways and analyze which is the best way to combine it. And we're, that's where computers are starting to learn. Now, we can, we can discuss philosophically, are these ideas or are, are they not? I mean, of course, it's not, it doesn't have a conscience. It doesn't have a subconscious. Yet. Yeah, well, okay. We can define what that means. But we definitely not should, should say computers cannot come up with ideas because they can and they will. And we should embrace that because at the end, it's all about the solutions we can create with our tools and computers is a tool. So that's the only way I look at it. It's, uh, I'm very excited from a creativity point of view for what's going to happen next. And in the coming uh, 10, 15, 20 years, what will be the most important skill? You talk about creativity. You talk about global mindset. You basically teach humans how to stay on top of what's happening now technology-wise and uh, world-wise and work-wise, right? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I think the, the global mindset, or maybe we should call it a human mindset. That That is... Super important. Mm. The way I look at this is that technology is used to um, technology is used to widen our world. If we had no, if we live in a jungle ten thousand years ago and no, we have no access to technology, the only world we knew, sorry, would be like five kilometers around our village, our tribe. That's all we knew. 
That's our, that was our universe. And right. still in Amazonas, it's like this. But then we invented new technologies, and we like we invented the shoe. Now we could walk further. We invented the, we tamed the horse. Now we could ride even further. And then we invented things like this. And every time we did, our worldview grew. Then we invented the telegraph and the train, the airplane, the microscope, the telescope. And now our world is so much bigger. Like someone who lives in Amazonas doesn't know about the universe and doesn't know about bacteria. If you think about it, their worldview is very very limited. But technology has widened our world, and the technologies that we are inventing today are on a global scale for the first time. Like, mm. for example, the World Wide Web is the perfect example of this, right? So now we are inventing technologies that make it possible for the first time in human history to connect all of mankind. Mm. And that's what we're doing now. And we, it, we're just starting to do it. So for us, it's not so in- impressive, but the effect will come 10, 20 years later, right? When we invented the train and the telegraph and the newspaper, that's when nations grew. Because now we can communicate to a whole nation and everyone felt they were part of the same nation. We had the same TV show and everyone mm-hmm. looked, we had the same. Therefore, we saw the same ads. Therefore, we followed the same football teams. So therefore, nations became a very strong identity. It was based on the technologies that made it possible to have that identity. Now that we're inventing global technologies, that will now build a much more global, global identity. And, and, and for example, the latest Google Air, earphones that you put in your ear and you speak Chinese to me, I don't, yeah, 40 different languages. So 40 different languages means I don't know how many, 1,600 or even or four times, four, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of different, now we can just, you and I can speak, can communicate with each other, so language is no barrier anymore, right? That's a perfect example of a technology that connects all of humanity. And that means uh, Google Translate, the, the Turkish airline, <laughs> Turkish airline is building a new airport that opens in September, has six runways, uh, it's uh, it can handle 220, 200 million passengers, which is twice as much as the largest airport in the world. They are flying now to 180 different countries or locations, yes, but they're going to do, I think they're going to increase it to 320 with the new airport. That means you can fly, I think it's 320. In, in six months from now, you can fly from 320 different places on earth <laughs> with just one stop in Istanbul. That people built Hong Kong is not Hong Kong is built where Hong Kong is built because that's where the port was. Right now, you connect anywhere on Earth with anywhere on Earth with one stop. That's going to change the way we define ourselves as human beings. And uh, most people are not mentally there yet. They're still so stuck in their you know uh, nationalistic identity. They don't understand that we are now going to add one more layer. And I think that layer will be the most important identity. And the people who add this mentality now will have a huge advantage 10, 20 years from now. Just like the people who added a digital, you know, who, the people who understood the, the digital change, like the digital nomads, the, the uh, not 20, 20, 15 years ago, now have a huge advantage because right. they understood what it means to add digital to our thinking. The people who add truly global or human way of thinking now to their identities will have an advantage because most people are not going to think like this for another hundred years. And how are you going to do that? Well, that's what you have to do. So you, <laughs> in my case, I, I believe you have to travel more, but right. you also need to, you know, you have to connect with more people. You need to uh, make sure you read news from many different countries. Every country has an English speaking uh, mm. newspaper online. So don't just read your national newspaper, read different newspaper, find experts in your, like, for example, I'm a professional speaker. Mm-hmm. So I'm a member of the, as you said, I'm actually the vice president of Asia Professional Speakers Singapore. I'm president next year. But uh, I'm also, I'm a member of the Namibian Speaker Association, the Australian Speaker Association. I founded the Swedish Speaker Association, and I'm a member of NSA in America, which means I'm a member of five speaker associations on five continents. Why am I? Why? I just got the Hall of Fame of the, the Namibia, speaker, <laughs> Namibia Speaker Association. I'm very, very proud of this. But why am I a member of the Namibia Speaker Association? Because I want to have a global mindset, which means I want to connect with speakers around the world. And how do I do that? I join the association in at least one country on every continent. So that means now I, so that means I have a global mindset, uh, much more global mindset than almost all, all any other professional speaker out there. Right. And I know so many speakers are very, very successful in their own country, and they only speak in their own country. And to me, that is so uh, limiting. But I'm not saying you have to travel the world like I do, like 24 countries in a year. I'm saying you have to have the mindset. You can have the mindset without traveling at all, it's, but it helps a lot if you travel. But you yeah. need to connect with these people and learn from these people. And uh, it changes the way you look at everything. 
what was the thing that you learned this year that changed everything for you or that was really eye-opening? I don't think it, it might have been just last year, though, okay. if that's okay. Yeah. Mm. Because I'm married to a Filipino, Filipina. So my wife is from the Philippines and I am from Sweden. And then we live in Singapore. Our kids are born in Singapore. So when we get married, everything is fine, very little culture clash. But then we have kids and now we have to decide, okay, who, how are we going to raise these kids? Are we going to raise them Swedish way or Filipino way or Singaporean way? <laughs> very different ways of, of raising kids, right? For example, in Sweden, you would never hit your kids. Right. I was never hit by my parents. And it, we, Sweden was the first country in the world to make it illegal to hit a child. Boom. Swedes, unthinkable. Right. Philippines hit the kids all the time. <laughs> um, Singapore, somewhere in the middle. Right? They don't say they hit the kids, but they hit the kids. So, so are we going to hit the kids or are we not going to hit the kids? Mm. Now, both... Uh, luckily for me, my wife said, okay, well, maybe if you, uh, Swedish people are, are nice people. So if you can grow up to be nice without being hit, let's not hit them. Then uh, in Asia, you have respect for all people. Right. In Sweden, we don't. Right? We, we have no respect. We, we disrespect all people. It's, it's very sad. <laughs> so after 10 years in Asia, I said, you know, I like this Asian way. So I said, let's do that. Let's do, the, let's do your way, Elaine. So we have, when the grandmother comes and visits, my kids will have to run to the door and do the mano mano, put the head on the forehead and, and bow for the grandmother. I think that's a very nice thing to do. It teaches respect and, and learn from the elders and everything. And then as to your question then, so a couple of months ago, it was raining like crazy in Singapore. And in, Sing in, in, in Philippines, if it rains, the kids cannot go out and play because they think you get sick in the rain. Mm, mm, mm. And in Sweden, if it snows, we'll send the kids out. You know, It makes you strong and healthy. Go out. So now it rains in Singapore. Can they go out? Can they not go out? And we have, me and my wife, now, if I would have married a Swedish woman, we, I we would not have this discussion. Right. We would just say, you know what? It's no, slam them out. We're not going to hit them. And we wouldn't have a discussion about how to raise kids. Because we agree. Because we think this is how you raise kids. And other people raised it in other ways, but this is how you should raise them. But now, everything we do, I have to discuss. Wait, why do we say we do it like this in Sweden? Is this really the best way? Is there a better way? And every time we have to argue. And when you get this mindset, when you truly get this mindset, which is married to a mixed-race family, living in an extremely global city, and having a work that is truly global, I have less than 5% of my work in Singapore, anything I do will now, is now based on what's the best way of doing something, not based on what my culture or my parents told me. What's the best way? And that actually happened to me first time when I moved to China. Because everyone said to me, oh, Freddy, was, isn't it difficult, you know, when you're all by yourself in China, you don't know anyone? Wasn't it difficult? Like, didn't you lose your identity? And I said, no, it's the total opposite. I gained my identity by moving mm. to China. Because when I moved to China, before I knew anyone, for the first two, three months, I was all alone. I didn't have friends, nothing, no colleagues. I'm by myself. I would go to a restaurant. I would order food and eat by myself. And because they saw I'm not Chinese, I look very white. <laughs> they would give me a fork, a spoon, a knife, and two chopsticks. Right. I had four different ways to eat the dish. Mm. And all the Chinese would just pick up the chopsticks. Like my wife would eat with a fork and a spoon. She's Filipino. I eat with a fork and a knife. I'm Swedish. But now I had all. Fork, spoon, knife, chopstick. And for the first time in my life, I made a conscious decision how to eat my food. Not based how culture tells me mm. to eat this dish. Mm. I don't know what the dish is. I don't know how you're supposed to eat it. I have four different ways to eat this food. What do I think is the best way to eat this food right now? Mm. And I choose whatever I wanted. So maybe I know I, I just, okay, spoon today. And I took spoon and I didn't work chopsticks then. And I would try it out. And that changed that. I remember I had an aha moment in that restaurant. I said, <laughs> I'm not going to assume I know best. I'm going to say, what's the best way of doing something? Which means, for example, that I, I work by myself. I don't have any employees. But I have, one, I have one virtual assistant in the Philippines. I have one virtual assistant in India. My designer, uh, one of my designers sits in Singapore. But one of my designers sits in Sweden. My uh, web developer sits in India, but my server guy sits in, in uh, Ukraine. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. But I, was like, I, I work with six and seven people like, on a daily basis, and only one of them happens to be, live in Singapore, and she happens to be Swedish. So uh, I'm just saying, where can I find a person I like to work with? And because, I, I, of course, I could find all of these people in the Philippines or all of these people in India but I, or, or in Singapore, but I like to say, let's spread it out because I get different ideas from the Filipino woman than I get from the Indian woman because their mindset are different. They suggest different, different things to me. And the Indian IT guy says have different, different ideas than the Ukrainian IT guy. Now I get different ideas from them. So it's all, always the same idea, always the same concept. 
open up your brain to your own ideas out there and select the best one, not based on what you think historically or where you were born or your passport, but based on what's best to do right now. That's absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so many people are so scared to do that, right? Because for the first time, you actually need to think for yourself and make choices. And then you may be wrong because when the culture tells you or somebody else tells you, that's not your fault. If yeah, something goes wrong, right, not it wasn't me, right? Yeah, it yeah. was somebody else. Yeah. But now when you move out and you know you, you really live globally and you think for yourself and you expose yourself to all those circumstances and cultures and ideas uh, and ways of living as well, you yeah. probably also stop judging others and you stop judging uh, a lot of things, yes. right? It becomes it becomes just a stream of information with which you can play. And, uh, and, you know, and move through stages of life because you also went through several stages of life. Yeah. And what was good for you when you were 20 is yes. not good for, for you when you are now, right? Yeah. You know, you look, the saddest, thing I, the saddest thing in the world, I think, is someone who is born in one village, <laughs> uh, lives his whole life in that village and never changes. It's not wrong to live in the same village your whole life. It's not about that part of it. It's that part of not opening up yourself to the world. That is the sad part of it. You can live happily live in the one village your whole life, but you need to. You know, the whole idea of growing is that you widen your horizons. So you, you and um, um, yeah, I want to say because I, I went to North Korea uh, right. a couple of years ago, and I was there for five days, so I didn't learn. I mean, I got a glimpse of it, but I asked a guy, it was a British guy who's been there for like ten years. I said, right. tell me something about North Koreans that 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 um, that I, I can't pick up in five days. And he said, he said, they, uh, 80%, 80%, 80 percent, are great, are, are just great, hum, decent human beings who want the best for their for themselves, best for their family, and best for the society, and best for the world. And twenty percent are assholes. <laughs> and which means he said we are just they are just like us. And it's it's the same in every country. Like Donald Trump just talked about shit shithole countries, right? <laughs> uh, I, I uh, is it, I, said, I want to do, I, I, I'm not so active on Twitter, but if I would have t tweeted, I would have tweeted, uh, there are no shit-told countries. They're just assholes. And they're assholes in every country. In, but in some countries, the assholes are in charge. Okay? Yeah. Well, that that's is the only <laughs> So that makes some countries worse than others. But governments change. There's no asshole countries. They're just assholes. And they're everywhere in the world. So when you start to realize this, you realize that most people, actually, um, I call this the human dream. So the American dream is like, I'm going to become as rich as possible. But the mm. human dream is different. It's not the American dream. Mm -hmm. The human dream is I want to have the best, I want to have a good life for me and my family and I want the society that is, I mean, and for the society that I live in. And for, and I'm saying that most people are not thinking and for the world, but that's, that's starting to come now too. And I, I think when humanity starts adding the last part of that sentence, mm. for me, my family, uh, my community, and for the world, when we add that, which I said I think we're doing it right now for the next 20, 30 years, when we add that, everything is going to change. Because yeah. then we will start looking at, uh, we will care about the, person in the Bangladeshi factory and you know everything changes and we will not just send our trash away to some other part of the world um, I live on an island I have an island so I, in, for two months every year I live on an island and when you live on an island you get very very aware of that everything is connected of the impact you're making because like you have trash you, you bring something on board the island you have trash now what are you going to do with it you have to, I have to bury it I have to put it somewhere so it doesn't go away so I have this concept of look, thinking of Earth as the human island. Like a very, it, that's what it is, the very small island in a vast sea of space. So, uh, so I have this project right now. It's called the human island, humanisland.com. And I go and I visit 100 islands around the world in 100 months. So I've been doing this for about two and a half years. So I, I go and I visit 100 islands. I was just in Mauritius and I've already done Hong Kong and Mal Maldives, Manhattan, everywhere, mm -hmm. just islands. And I wonder what can I learn about humanity by visiting islands around the world and then put that insight to get everyone to just think of Earth as one very, very big or very, very, very small island. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because an island mentality, when you live on an island, everyone becomes the same. Yeah, and everybody is a family. I mean, you cannot escape. It's yeah. the island. Well, there are some islands where they're fighting, <laughs> like Ireland or, or <laughs> Sri Lanka used to be like that. I mean, it's not it's not a given that just because you live on an island, everything is peaceful. But you do have this mentality, the island mentality of us on this island mentality. And that's the, that's the mentality I want humans to have.
I have this idea actually that I think is quite funny because Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. Right. right? And I think he will, and I think we will, and it's amazing. It's a great idea. How many years? Ah, okay, in, in our lifetime. Okay. So, so let's say that we do. What we should do is we should send a hundred humans to Mars, and then we should create a conflict. With whom? Between Mars and, and Earthlings. Yeah. <laughs> we should create an artificial conflict that makes us hate each other. Mm. Because here's my analogy. Like, uh, if you live in Long if you live in Manchester, you either root for Manchester City or Manchester United, and they hate each other like no one else. They really hate each other because they like blue or white. I mean, red or blue. But then suddenly, Manchester City goes and plays Chelsea in London, and suddenly everyone in Manchester just hates London. Uh, yeah. So that local conflict doesn't go away, but it becomes almost irrelevant because now everyone's going to hate it's, London. There's a bigger conflict. There's a bigger conflict on yeah. a higher and then level. Then you go to another right? city country. But then, but suddenly, then uh, London and England starts playing France, and someone from Manchester, someone from London, just they, they, they love each other, drinking beer together. Now they hate France, <laughs> and then suddenly London and France—I mean, England and France—now they, they they go this ISIS conflict, and now it's Christian versus Muslim, and all the French and the English guy love each other because now they hate the Muslims, right? So every time the, all the smaller conflicts go away because we get together on a bigger scale, and everyone says, "Oh, Frederick, we cannot have a global mindset because we need an enemy," which I think is total bullshit, to be honest. We don't need an enemy to identify ourselves. I, uh, Christians will not be less Christians if we murder every Muslim; they still be Christians, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need a uh, we don't need an enemy for uh, to have our identity. We have our identity anyway. But for the people who say that, I say, okay, fine. Let's send a hundred people to Mars and let's hate them, because what would happen is that all humans on, on Earth would now come together as one and hate those stupid Martians, and they would be far away, so the conflict wouldn't really matter. <laughs> Hopefully, for for the next hundred well, years. Well, okay, fine. We can create an art. We can create. We can create a sports conflict, like a yeah. Manchester City, Manchester United, do the e game where they play each other in goal through yeah. through the distance. But we need an enemy so we can all come together as one. That's. Uh, it's a very philosophical question, but I believe if we did, we would solve problems in a much more effective, effective way. Then, and uh, it will happen. It, it will happen. happen. Yeah, yeah, at the end of, of the day, there's it's no all, way to stop that. It has all, <laughs> we have always gotten a bigger mindset. In just the last hundred years, we've been in this nationalistic mindset. Or then Europe tried the European Union, but it's kind of a, it's Why a substance. Why has European Union not worked out? Well, I wouldn't say it hasn't worked out, though. I think that's a little bit unfair to say it hasn't worked out. It has created... Uh, Well, peace in most of Europe for 50 years, which is very unusual for Europe, <laughs> very unusual for Europe, and it has created a much easier way to do business across Europe. It, I mean, the, op, the I'm not so sure that the opposite would have been better, but it's very much. It, it's it. I think it was done. It's a, it's a sub-step. It's kind of like you go up uh, steps in an elevator and you stop halfway between two steps. Continent is not really so important. We are now mentally going humanity, global. global. So why do continent? It's kind of uh, intuitive in a bit to do that. So I think we can kind of see that as a, a small step on the bigger, on the bigger scale. Mm. And now I would like to turn uh, to your uh, speaking expertise. There's a lot of people here in Asia right now that... Uh, just exploring, just as you said, this professional speaking, you know, uh, opportunities to hire coaches or to become a coach or to become a speaker. What is that industry? How to start in it? Who needs to hire a professional speaker? Who needs to become or who can become? Can you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Okay. So first of all, it's a very fascinating job because it's one of the few jobs in the world where anyone, like a true amateur, can be one of the most sought-after experts in a year. Remember mm. there was this uh, airline pilot who landed a plane on the Hudson River? <laughs> right, remember, right, right, yeah. After that, he went on the speaking circuit for a while, right? So he went from, he was just a pilot, he had no speaking experience, and then suddenly everyone wanted to learn from him how to handle, you know, a crisis or whatever, or this Captain Phillips, the guy that they made a movie about, the one who, on an oil tanker, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he's kidnapped and all of that. He, that captain, I spoke on the same stage as him. He actually goes around and does speeches. He got someone to write him a speech, and he goes around the world and gives this. <laughs> so, you know, okay, those are two extreme life events, but technically... Like I was 27, I, I studied internet for 10 weeks, and I was I was an expert. I was I was making a living as a speaker from a university student to one of Sweden's most booked speakers in a year. So as long as you become an expert or you have an interesting story to tell, you can go from nobody to world expert in a year. You don't do that if you're a doctor or a pilot or or a programmer or anything, right? So this is a unique unique thing. Yeah. The other part of it is. It's a very, very difficult in, uh, job to be good at. It's very easy. Everyone goes up and speaks. I mean, everyone knows how to speak. Everyone mm. can be a speaker. But it's very, very 
very, very difficult to be a really, really good speaker. So, and that's where this paradox of speaking comes in. And when it comes to Asia, like I said, I've been there for 10 years. The professional speaking industry in, in Asia is in its infancy. Yeah. I like to say that we have more professional speakers in Sweden, a country of 10 million, than we have in our English in, speakers who can give a speak, speech in English. We have more speakers like that in Sweden, a non-native English country, than we have in Asia. Or at least, okay, maybe exclude India. India, yeah. Okay, let's exclude mm. India. But even in India, I mean, they are very, uh, I guess I helped to set up the Professional Speaker Association in India. They didn't have one until last year. Uh, <laughs> and in America, they had one for 40 years. In Singapore, we had one for 15 years. In India, they just set it up. And I, so you mentioned this convention that I'm organizing. It's a non-profit organization. It's the Asia Professional Speaker Convention. And we have now 200 speakers coming uh, this year, 200 to 240. And that's from all over Asia, from, I think, 13 Asian countries. Mm-hmm. The American convention has 1,600 people at it. Just, uh, that's just America. There's 300 million people in America, 1,600 people come to the convention. There's, what, 2 billion, 60% of the world population is living in Asia, and we have 200 people coming. It just shows that this industry is in, in its infancy. Yeah. But, and this is the thing, conventions are growing like crazy in Asia. Like, I, when I started, when I came to Asia 10 years ago, you do a conference in Bali, there would be, like, a small little backdrop and a, <laughs> and a projector on a table. It was like, oh, God, this is so <laughs> amateurish. And they will maybe pay for a speaker. 10 years later, they have full, you know, the 50-meter backdrop with back projection screens and lighting. And, and you, you go at the, to a convention now in Bali or in Phuket or in Singapore or anywhere, Hong Kong, and they are just as professional as they are anywhere in the world, just as good. So the industry has really became professional. And when you pay, you know, you buy, you buy a backdrop, you pay for a big backdrop, you pay for lighting, you pay for everything. Of course, now you have a budget for speaking. So suddenly there are budgets for speakers. And I'm absolutely convinced that Asia will be the largest market for professional speakers in the world in less than 20 years from now. Yeah. Maybe not as advanced as the American market, but it will be the biggest market for it. And it's, it's happening. And when that happens, they don't want to fly in Americans anymore. Like they've mm. been doing historically. They want, they, they, want, they want people who know Asia. And I've mm. been there for 12 years. So for me, it's perfect. But they also want, and it's a huge market for local speakers too. But you need, have, you need something to say, right? And uh, so the, the, um, there's a very, very good time to get into speaking right now. But you, you, uh, the, as the industry becomes more professional, the, de- the demand on speakers also increasing. And you can't, you know, you could wing it five years ago. You can still wing it, actually. Mm. in Asia, but soon you have to be as professional as they are. So you said it's very difficult to be good at Mm. it. So how to be good at it? Uh, I spend a whole life thinking about this. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, this game Othello, Othello, the the game with black and white circles and you move them around. Okay. Anyway, it's one of those uh, board games. Uh And the the slogan is a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. Uh And it's very easy to learn. I guess we can use Go as an example. The, The rules of Go is very simple. But it takes, you know, it, you can, there's billions and billions of, of moves that you can do. It's the same with speaking. The, the fundamentals are very easy, but just because they're easy doesn't mean it's a simple job to do, right? And mm-hmm. so every, I, so I spend actually a lot of time just thinking about what makes a good speech. And I blog about it. So that's my blog, professionalspeaking.com. And I blog every week about how to become a global speaker. And I focus a lot on the speaking itself, not the business side of it, but the, the art of speaking. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and how can people start? You just said there are a lot of opportunities mm. in the market. So let's say there are people with an interesting life story or yeah. with, a, with a significant event, or they are experts on a topic that is really hot right now, be it blockchain, be it technology, yeah. be it China, be it whatever. Artificial intelligence, if you know about that, go AI, go huge up. demand for that. Exactly. So how to start? Okay, so I, I have mentored hundreds, literally hundreds of, of speakers on how to become better at speaking. And what I realized was that the number one thing you need to do is that you need to know why, why you speak. Because the speakers who just pick a topic or say, I'm gonna, they're, they're speak, they're, they speak on a topic, they never really make it. The ones that really make it, they speak from the heart. Mm-hmm. That, that's the big difference. Mm-hmm. And to be able to speak from your heart, you need to know what your heart is about. So I, I call this my inner theme or your inner mm-hmm. theme. And I actually now help people to do that. So uh, it's, uh, they're interested, innerstheme.com. 
mm-hmm. and it takes one hour. And in one hour, I help people find their inner theme because I am amazed how few people are aware what their inner theme really is. And when you connect to your inner theme, suddenly your message just resonates on a much uh, more profound, deep level with the audience. And audiences can feel this. What TED.com has created, as a, a lot after people really understand, they've seen a lot of speeches now. They've seen the speeches on free, for, on hundreds and thousands of speeches on free, for free on, on the internet. And people have very, very high expectations and they don't take bullshit anymore. They want authenticity. They want real people telling real stories. And if you don't know who you really are, you can't do that. You mm-hmm. just go, then you do a presentation. Mm. A presentation. There, there are no professional present, 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 presenter. <laughs> they're professional speakers. Mm. Professional speakers speak of uh, are authentic speakers. Like uh, think uh, Nelson Mandela, think Gandhi, think Desmond Tutu, think Mother Teresa. Those kind of like people. Uh, Martin Luther King. Those that that's the profound. Uh, it's, you can hear they're speaking from their heart kind of people. And that's what professional speaking should be about. So number one uh, lesson is to understand your inner theme. Yeah. And, and your inner mm-hmm. theme is, I call this, an inner theme is a universal truth on, uh, best told by you. So a message that every human needs to hear, mm-hmm. but you are the best person on earth to tell this message. So in my case, humanity to the power of ideas, the potential of humanity and, and the power of ideas. Everyone reaching, every human being reaching the maximum creative ability. I think I'm best suited in the world to tell this story because I've been writing about creativity for almost 25 years. I've spoken in 67 countries, I, 24 countries last year. I'm a very, very global person and I'm very, very interested in creativity. I don't know anyone on earth that does that more than me. Mm. And I think everyone needs to hear this message. But Absolutely. you, everyone has an inner theme. And the inner theme is like the, a red thread that goes through your whole life from who you were at childhood to who you are today. Like, why did I write a book about the internet? Not because I like the internet, but because the internet was this huge idea that connected humanity. That's why I like the internet. Mm. That's why I didn't get in, excited about, about GMO, for example, because I don't like farming. It's not, it's not in me. I grew up on a farm, but that's not, I'm not, that's not part of me. Right. So you need, yeah, because when you find that in the theme, then it's kind of, the, 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 it's like your life's slogan. Mm. And when mm. you know you that, then, so then, for example, I'm going to speak now to wealth to later today for wealth manager, wealth management managers of a bank. Mm. Why do I want to do this? <laughs> because I want them to be more creative in the solutions they offer the rich people, so that the rich people do better things with their money. I mean, and if they did that on a global scale, the world would be a better place. I go there. I'm not speaking to a bunch of bankers today. I'm spreading my message, and the audience right. happen to be bankers. Right, mm-hmm. right. And you're making an impact through all that, exactly. right? On a global scale, yes. which is absolutely exactly. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, uh, I think we can talk about it all for hours, but um, what would be one piece of advice for you uh, to start up speakers, somebody who, is, who wants to read a book, who would like to, you know, to watch some other presenters out there. Who is that role model? Is there a speaker in the world or is there a book that everybody absolutely must check out from your point of view? Well, some of your books, of course. <laughs> I, my, I just released a new book <laughs> uh, actually like one month ago. It's called Spread Your Message, See the World, How to Become a Global Keynote Speaker. It's, three, it's $3 on Amazon Kindle. I put the price really low. And it's self-published, but uh, you know it, it's not about the money. Uh, you can email me if you don't have three dollars. It, it's basically me helping people. If you already have your inner theme, to help you now spread this message to the world. Because if you really do have a message to humanity, why only spread it to a small part of? Why don't think bigger and spread it to, to as many people as possible? So that uh, when it comes to speaking styles, I don't believe at all at, at looking at one speaker like Tony Robbins or uh, Seth Godin or whatever, uh, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Uh, they all have different speaking styles. So I say you need to find your own speaking essence. Mm. And because and do you know how to find it? Yes, I mean, that's very it. easy. Inner theme is very difficult to find by yourself. Mm. It's almost impossible. It's like putting makeup on yourself without a mirror. It's very difficult. Because <laughs> it's difficult to look inside yourself. That's why people need help with this. And that's why I help people with this. Take one hour. But the in, uh, speaker essence, everyone can easily find. All you have to do is think about what is the three things people say to you after they come up and hear you speak. And they say, thank you very much. That was, and then they tell you. 
Mm. In my case, they say they, they say it was inspiring. They say it was uh, it was uh, simple. It was authentic. And when they say simple, that means easy to understand. Everyone gets you didn't complicate things. You just make, showed us the truth, right? So authentic, simple, uh, and and inspiring. These are these are my speaker essence. So I know that when I would go up on stage, I should not try to be Frederick Harrison, the author of the idea book, who has. <laughs> It was included in the 100 best business books of all time. I'm not going to go out and try to be a guru because the American style of speaker, when I try to do that, it just bombs. I'm right. a, I, that's not me. I'm, sweet, I'm Frederick from Sweden. Right? I'm just a speaker. I'm just, I just go up and I'm just myself. I just have a conversation with the audience and they absolutely love it. So you, you need to be of the authentic speaking. The, the essence of who you really are when you are the best on stage, that is the best. And that's, that's what you need to identify. And that's quite easy to do. Look at yourself, ask people who see you, record your own video, and then emphasize that. Just like makeup. makeup good makeup should just uh, make your natural features stand out more. Shouldn't try to make you someone else. That's called the masquerade. Yeah, either masquerade or plastic surgery. Yeah, okay. So don't edit yourself, guys. Plast okay, plastic surgery <laughs> speaking does work. I know people who've done that, but let's all, let's be honest, it is fake. So and people and people can feel it. They right? can see. Wait, she's using bottom. People can feel it, and then they they lose respect for the speaker. If if uh, the equivalent would be like Hans Rosling, if you know Hans Rosling, mm. one of the top speakers, and he just died unfortunately, but he's mm. from Sweden, and he went up, and he has a very very special sweet English Swedish English accent. He just goes up. And he doesn't care. He just uses his sweet, very English and his big stick, and he goes around and he's this happy professor, and everyone else loves him. Right. He's not trying. They, people are going, there's no Botox in that guy. They could right. just, this is just who he is. I love this guy. Someone goes up and it's all plastic surgery, Botox speaker, and you go, okay, sure, you're great, but you know what? Who I, I'm sure behind the, all of that, I don't know if I, I don't know who you are because I don't know who you are. I don't, I don't think I like you. Mm, mm, mm. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, so, we need to wrap up because I know you need to run. We could again talk for hours because it's so, so exciting. You guys are not, uh, you're, you're not uh, seeing that visually, but I think I just completed five or six pages of notes right here, getting so much value out of it. Um, Frederick, how can people contact you? Give us the plug of the businesses that you're running, the keynotes that you're giving. How can people actually be in touch for business inquiries and to get uh, value? Okay, so the easiest, would be, I guess, would be uh, interesting.org is the easiest website to remember. Interesting.org. My company is called the Interesting Organization. And then, then uh, professionalspeaking.com is it's all free. I have about 200 in, uh, blog posts about how to be a global speaker. And uh, innerseam.com if you're interested in the inner theme, uh, help to find your inner theme as a speaker or as a person. Uh, and those are the three domains I would like. That's to absolutely. I'm totally subscribing for inner theme and I'm going to find my inner theme as a speaker because that's also my big, big, big goal for this year to actually take my speaking and uh, engagements to the next level. Uh, Frederick, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Guys, make sure that you subscribe, stay with us and more fantastic speakers are coming soon. Thank you very much, Frederick. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.